0: This is episode number 75 of the Birding Off podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. This past Saturday, the 4th of September was International Vulture Awareness Day. In today's show, we chat to Ben Hoffman from Raptor Rescue. In this interview, we look at why vultures are such an important part of the ecosystem and why we should conserve them. This is a fascinating chat with so much great information about these special birds. This episode will be the last episode of Season 1 of the Birding Life podcast. We will launch Season 2 on Thursday, the 7th of October. We are grateful for all the support of the last 75 episodes, and we are working hard to take Season 2 to a whole new level. As always, the Burning Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app Spot, Plot, Play Apart, download and install the app to play your part in social conservation if you enjoy this podcast please subscribe and leave a rating and a review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast to help others to find the show please also tell others you know about the show if you'd like to contribute to help us cover the costs associated with hosting the show you can click on the link in the comment section of this episode and buy us a coffee or two so without further ado let's hear from today's guest ben so, Ben, you joined me on a stormy KZN night. Uh, so, if there's any thunder in the uh, in the background, that's what the noise is. Cool sound effects.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, thanks for getting a hold of me.
0: This past Saturday was International Vulture Awareness Day. So, here's the all-important question. Why vultures? Because the reason I ask you this is a lot of people have a lot of stigmas that are attached to vultures. They, they see them as dirty birds, and there's many negative connotations uh, attached to them.
1: Well, actually... Yeah, vultures are probably the cleverest birds out there. Um, next to some of the corvids, the crows. They're actually not very stinky. They've got a very particular smell, but they after every time after they they eat, they go and have a bath, so they're actually not stinky at all. And without vultures, the world would be a seriously depleted place.
0: It's interesting because when I had a chat to you the other day, we just before when we were organizing, you said that you're really passionate about vultures. So how did this, uh, how did this love for vultures start? Tell us a little bit about your conservation journey.
1: Um, I've been fascinated with birds of prey since I was a kid. I started doing falconry. Um, well, I had a pet kestrel when, when I was a youngster. And then um, as I got older and learned a little bit about falconry, I became a falconer. And I actually went to a high school. I chose a high school because it was a master. That did fault me at that school, even though I had to board and live 300 K's away. So, yeah, you know, since a kid, I've been absolutely besotted by, by birds of prey. And, um, vultures have always been a fascinating group of, of, of species of birds. They, just their lifestyle. Everything about them is, is really quite unique and epic. And then conservation wise is, um, I spent a little bit of time in the army, and as soon as I left the army, I joined National Parks um, as a ranger, and I've been in full time in conservation ever since.
0: Where did you go to high school? I
1: we went to a place called Mthali Boys High in Zimbabwe. Teacher was late uh, Ron Hartley, quite a quite a well known guy. He was he worked for the in the later years for the Peregrine Fund, but. Um, yeah, was was uh, a really good falcon and good prey expert in his own right.
0: Yeah, I was actually reading a little bit about Peter Stein's story. I know he was also into that kind of thing. And it was just interesting that, you know, in the past generations, how this, this love for birds and nature was instilled into the next generation. And I haven't actually heard about that happening at schools nowadays.
1: Yeah, well, at some, some schools, there's, until fairly recent. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if they're still carrying on in South Africa, Hilton College. I've got a very active wildlife society. You know, and, uh, one of their subjects was falconry. They, so, so the falconry, the school was actively involved in falconry. And then Falcon College in Zimbabwe, still, as far as I know, are still use, do act falconry as a, as a, a school sport. So it's still, it's still out there. And, and a lot of clubs, a lot of schools have got really active eco clubs nowadays.
0: I think that's where Peter stain was actually at Falcon College up in, in Zimbabwe.
1: Yeah, he was there. And then uh, there was Ridge Quill and, and Ron Hartley. So they've had a a number of very knowledgeable and, and um, very passionate people running, working at the school.
0: So tell us a little bit about the special family of birds and what makes vultures so special.
1: Well, vultures, the majority of them are obligate Scavengers. So, in other words, they don't kill their own food. So, like all birds of prey, these really big talons and, and big hooked beak, and they go around and they can actually catch and kill their own prey. Vultures don't. They only eat dead carcasses. And except a little bit on the white headed vulture has been shown by Campbell Muir to do some kill its some small quarry by itself. But yeah, they 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 just such a unique species. That have such a vital ecological niche that, that they've evolved into. So, so you've sort of got old world vultures and new world vultures and the African vultures are fairly different from like the condor. The condors are probably closer to the storks from an, from a, a genealogy line where, where the African vultures are very much a very distinct group of birds. So, so vultures worldwide sort of fall into these, as I said, two, two groups, old world vultures and new world vultures, which we have the old world vultures uh, in South Africa.
0: And in terms of Southern Africa, how many vulture species are found and how is their conservation status looking at the moment?
1: Okay, so we we, we get seven, seven species. I'll just go through them quickly. So we get leopard-faced vulture. And if you talk across their range, okay, so some of these birds, other than the the Cape Vulture is endemic to South Africa. The rest have populations throughout Southern Africa and and into parts of East Africa. But like leopard faced vulture across its range you've seen probably a eighty percent decline. Cape vulture up to ninety two percent decline in their their populations. Rupals, which we see Rupals vultures and East African um vulture very closely related to our cape vulture. But they've had a ninety-seven percent decline in their their populations. Bearded vultures probably an eighty percent decline. They're only found now in the Suture Highlands and some parts of the Drakensberg. White-backed vulture ninety percent decline. With white-headed vultures ninety-seven percent decline. Hooded vulture eighty-three percent decline. Um, then we've got palm nut vultures. Is quite an interesting one because it's one of the few species I think is is declining in other parts of its range, but in South Africa and Southern Africa it's expanding its range. And then the Egyptian vulture is extinct as a breeding species in South Africa, with small populations, probably Angola and East Africa. So that basically makes nine species of vulture if you count peruples and our extinct Egyptian vultures.
0: You know, in terms of vultures, what role do they play in the food chain and how do their dwindling um, numbers actually impact the eco- ecosystem as a whole? Basically,
1: they basically, they're the scavenger, they clean up, they're clean the cleanup crew. So when there's a carcass, um, you'll get a whole bunch of um, vultures descending on the carcass and they can clean up a carcass fairly quickly. You know, a, a group of 20 or 30 vultures will sort out an impala carcass in, in probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Um, with the majority of meat gone. And what it does in the ecosystem, it stops the spread of diseases so that you, you don't have huge, the longer a carcass lies there, the more chance of, of disease like anthrax and those sort of diseases spreading. But once a vulture, vultures can cons- consume animals that have died of anthrax and not die of anthrax themselves. So, it gets rid of the carcass, pulls it out of the ecosystem so that the ecosystem doesn't get contaminated.
0: I'm quite interested, you know, how does their digestive systems work? Because they, they must have quite a, a crazy digestive system that to that to deal with what they what they consume.
1: Yeah, you know, they've got they've got incredible pH. Their their, their stomach, their, their system runs on much higher acidic levels than ours do. So they can basically eat most things. And you know, this this theory that but they only eat rotten meat is, is rubbish. They prefer fresh meat, but very often the lines and things are keep them at bay until they're finished and then allow the vultures. And in and in Africa's heat, food goes off very, very quickly. So um they would prefer the pressure the better, but um they can they can eat very, very um putrid meat and still get away with it.
0: And obviously as we speak about the you know the populations obviously, obviously a lot of people think of it in terms of the ecosystem in terms of animals and trees and all those kinds of things but you know I was just reading on one of the websites of how dwindling populations don't also have actually have a negative impact on humans and I read something about the rabies in India
1: there was a huge there was a huge issue in India with with a veterinary drug that was given to livestock A lot of the, a lot of the cattle in the buffalo are, um, have religious significance in India. And a lot of, they weren't, so they, they weren't sort of farmed as such, but they, they, there was plenty of them. And there was a population of five or six million vultures in India. And when one of these animals died, uh, the vulture would move and very quickly clean it up. Very little for, for, or scavenging dogs and other you know, to feast on them. They also um they, they've got a, a, a sect in India that, that um put their dead out uh, their dead people out on these these um platforms for the vultures to eat. And with the with this veterinary drug diclofenac, it's very, very cheap and it was very, very widely available. So if a buffalo was sick or, or a cow was sick, the local Farmers or, or villagers felt sorry for it. So they gave an injection of this this um, drug, which is Voltaren. It's the same same drug that we use, at Voltaren. And it, it's an anti-inflammatory analgesic. So it would lessen the pain for the buffalo. Very often the buffalo died and the vultures would swoop in and eat it. And they are incredibly sensitive to this drug. So it, it causes a visceral gout. In other words, they... They start getting like these white crystals on their, on their gut linings and, and they die literally overnight. So they, they start with their heads drooping and the next morning they're dead. And within a very, very short time, the population had been virtually wiped out in, within 10 years. And it, it was a very difficult one to identify. The, obviously, the, the biologists in, in India started noticing them first. They, in, asked for help from the Europeans. On to try to identify what this thing it was, couldn't work out it was a toxin from the environment. Was it a virus? Eventually it was pinned down, um, mostly by the Indian scientists and, um, found out it was this drug called diclofenac. It wiped out the population so much that there were no longer vultures to scavenge. So they had an influx of world, a huge outbreak of dogs, feral dogs just eating carcasses, eating these funeral pyres and a huge rabies outbreak that that was very very um, serious. They've now gone and had to start a breeding program and start reintroducing vulture populations, and they've obviously banned the use of diclofenac, which is hopefully in most most countries of the world has now been banned.
0: But that's such a scary statistic you know you were saying five to six million vultures were almost wiped out in such a short amount of time and you know that just shows you know why we need to conserve you know people look around so there's plenty around but I mean five to six million were nearly wiped out that that's scary
1: well well if you if you look at our populations and and so a lot of our, a lot of the population sensitive census needs to be done fairly often but if we we look at it so you, you've got white back vultures, in, on, from the South African context, we're probably looking at about 7,300 to 7,500 odd mature individuals. White headed vultures, critically endangered, probably 160 mature individuals. Uh, capes, 8,000, 8,500 odd mature birds. Leopards, maybe 300 mature birds. Um, and bearded vultures, 350. Mature birds. So, you know, you compare this to rhino, which everybody knows about. Rhino and rhino, there's there's a population of twenty to twenty two thousand rhino. So, to put it in context, you know, bearded vultures down to 350, 400 birds is pretty scary.
0: But then, do you are you is anyone aware why the palm nut vultures are not being affected like the other vultures in, in South Africa?
1: Well, they because they've. they've there are, there are species that, that are an urbanized species almost. So they, they, they're omnivores. So they don't rely on purely on just carrion. They're quite interesting because they, they will eat a, a little bit of, of fruit and they're fairly urban. So they, they, we're starting to see them around the urban areas. So they're, they're doing an Imtanzini in, in Kuzilu Natal. They, that population there grew quite, has grown quite, quite substantial or reasonable. But we're starting to see them pitch up in places. They, they're breeding now as breeding species in Durban. We've got breeding birds up as far as Howick. Yeah. So they, they're popping up all over the show. And, um, because they, they in urban areas, I don't think the, the threats facing the other vultures are, is there, which, which allows them to, to proliferate. And they're a fairly small vulture. Remember, they're pretty, pretty small little guy. Um, so they don't have these huge wingspans and require huge amounts of food.
0: So you've spoken about the dwindling numbers in South Africa and the region. What are the major threats that are affecting our vulture populations? Well,
1: it's, it's the two biggest are our electrical infrastructure. Uh, vultures hit the power lines and break wings, and then the other is is poisonings, both um, intentional and unintentional. So with the power lines, what happens very often the vultures. Because they, they, they're not designed to look forward. So when they're flying, they don't expect them to be anything in front of them. So most of their vision is obviously looking down, looking for carcasses and looking up to see where they, their other, where their friends are, you know, because they, they, they're obviously flock birds and, and very often flock birds like capes and they're not looking forward. So they fly into the, the power lines and the big, you know, the big, very big power lines that, that those um, sixty five kVA power lines, with the metal metal grids. Very often those they hit the earth wire, which is a very thin wire on top of it. So they see the main power line and they try to go over it and they don't see that, that earth wire and they hit that. Um and you speak to any helicopter pilot and he said those power lines are a nightmare because you just don't see them. You know, everybody thinks, oh. We're looking from the ground up and we often obviously see these things silhouetted against the sky. Vultures are the other way. They're looking down and they don't see them because they camouflage the ground against the earth. Those and then farm power lines. Very often birds coming into a carcass just don't see the power line. They often fly in, in in misty conditions. There is a little bit of movement at night, so they hit these these line infrastructures. Then we see quite a lot of poisonings where guys are trying to kill jackals or feral dogs um, and they put out poison for, for predators killing livestock and the vultures find it and kill. you kill 30 or 40 odd vultures in one fell swoop. Then we have another issue where, where poachers, because as soon, soon as there's a big carcass, the vultures start circling up above the carcass the rangers and the security guys um, and park officials see the vultures, they then rush out to that spot because they know that there's a carcass. And so the both the poachers will very often poison the carcass with a with a product called Temek, which is often called two-step, and kill the vultures just because they want to cover their tracks. And then the final one, the another big one, is where Carcasses are intentionally poisoned to kill vultures for use in the the industry for traditional belief. Because depending on where you go, um, some of the local folk believe that if you make a well, put it this way, when they they when you look up and you you there's a carcass and you look up there's not a vulture in the sky, and you look up twenty minutes later and there's fifty vultures there. Local folk believe that they, the vultures, when they're sleeping, they dream of where the carcasses are going to be. So in these dreams, they know the exact location, what carcass. So they head off there, and sure enough, there's a carcass. So the, the theory is, if you if you make muti out of the vulture's head, you'll be able to dream who will win the lotto, who's going to win the football, who's going to win the elections. So so you definitely start seeing spikes in poisonings close to big events and um, some some other some other people believe the bolt you make a mooty out of a vulture's feet you'll be able to run faster so our long distance runners you will you'll run faster and further so if you want to be a long distance runner you're going to be using the feet for that mouchy for that that purpose and yeah, it's it it it's you know, these, these you now seeing vulture parts openly sold at these beauty markets.
0: I can imagine that must be quite difficult to challenge because a lot of these beliefs are really ingrained. They've been, you know, ingrained through from generation to generation. So what are you doing to educate people around these beliefs to maybe to hopefully change those beliefs which are around vultures?
1: Well that's it's it's a huge challenge. So so most most of the conservation The larger bird oriented conservation groups, um, BirdLife, EWT, um, ourselves, Zuland Vulture Group are all working with, with outreach programs. So we're doing as much outreach stuff as we can here at the Bird of Prey Sanctuary. We, we actually get school kids in at, um, to the sanctuary side of where, and we put through about 10,000, well, we pre-COVID about 10,000 kids a year and you show them vultures and you show them feeding. And you, you 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 just pass them some knowledge and the idea is if you can educate the youngsters you you're not saying that they mustn't believe their parents but they can then take a, an educated view on it but but education is one of the key factors is uh, in combating this um, without without it we we're not going to get anywhere
0: and then you spoke about the power lines earlier is Escom doing anything about that because obviously the power line are put there by escom
1: yes yeah, so so Uh, Escom have a a strategic partnership with Endangered Wildlife Trust, and they have the Escom EWT strategic partnership. And that group coordinates if if somebody picks up a dead bird under a power line, especially a large bird, doesn't have to necessarily be a vulture; it can be a stork, or um, that was 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 electrocuted. There is a number you can phone. Either on the Escom website will tell it to you, or the Endangered Wildlife Trust site will tell you. You phone them, you tell them the location, they will send out technicians and they will, um, attempt to mitigate the threats for vultures. So, Eskom is doing its part. They're coming to the party where they can and will obviously, um, send out teams to, to then mitigate these, these collisions by putting on flappers or protecting the, putting covers on, on some of the, the T cross pieces on the, and the low voltage power lines.
0: I can imagine that's one of the real challenges because one of the reasons we can do this this discussion is because of electricity. So it's kind of like that that dilemma, and a lot of people would obviously get quite angry and this about the power lines. But you know, the reality is, you know, people need electricity. So it's kind of like that, trying to balance it out. You know, trying to balance out conservation with, uh, unfortunately, a growing human population.
1: Well, well, that's it. You know, so so the. The big infrastructures, and 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 you know, we it's not any power lines now. So we everybody thinks wind is very very green. Wind turbines is very very green. It kills birds of prey at a rate of knots that probably exceeds exceeds power lines. Big wind wind time turbines are hugely problematic for birds of prey. But again, you you've got you've got organisations that specialize in looking at where these wind turbines, and then when the EIA, the environmental investigation goes on prior to these turbines being put in or this new infrastructure being put in, they mitigate for the birds of prey. And if it's if it's in a flyaway zone, they will do everything in their power to have it moved to a different location. So there, there is a lot of advocacy stuff being done, but at the end of the day, ESCOM is going to put in that power line, and yeah. Um, we need to try and mitigate it as much as possible, and get it as safe as vultures friendly and vulture safe as possible.
0: And then, how are those flyway zones identified?
1: Well, that's that's a very complicated process. So a lot of a lot of the stuff is is picked up from tracked birds. So some birds, a lot, all the rehabilitated vultures, most of the rehabilitated vultures, and some wild birds are, are fitted with GPS trackers. These micro GPS solar powered trackers and they provide data about every hour of exactly where they're doing, where they're flying, and then you basically hopefully work out the paths that these birds regularly use. You know, birds obviously fly off every now and then and don't follow the rules and use the side roads, but very often going from A to B, they will they will go along fly zones because of the mountains or the wind currents or something, stuff that we don't really understand. Um, well, we can't see with the naked eye. They they will use these corridors. So it's, it's quite important that these infrastructures aren't put in the middle of these corridors.
0: So we've spoken about the threats and the dwelling numbers. You are involved in an organization called Raptor Rescue. So tell us about the work that, that your organization is doing to conserve these majestic birds.
1: Okay, well, so we, we, we're a double-edged world. We basically I put on, I have three hats. Um, I do the, the all the injured birds that come in. So all the power line uh, injuries, we, we have a, a dedicated uh, hospital. We have a specialist vet. And we treat all these power line injuries where possible. We pin pin bones. And just like if you break your leg, you go into to the orthopedic surgeon who puts it all back together again. Um, we, we do that for broken bones and and put the birds back so they can be released back into the wild. We also treat all the poisoning cases. If we if we can get to the birds quick enough, we have a pretty high success rate of treating the birds to get them back into the wild. So that's that's the one side. And and we're involved with obviously organizations like Wildlife Active We've got a very, very big footprint down in Zooland, Isambelo, Kazan and Wildlife. Um their their staff are really, really good at, at finding stuff and getting them through to us. And then so that's the one aspect. Then we then I'm involved with the African Bird of Prey Sanctuary, and I, I'm just there as an advisory in advisory capacity, but they do a lot of educational work and they 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 do free-flight bird shows and they bring schools in specifically looking at awareness. So across the board, they one of the things they do is vultures, the others they they do a lot of work on is owls because there's a lot of superstition around owls. And then we're doing work with the Bird of Vulture Task Force which is the idea is because of the hugely dwindling numbers, there's a bearded vulture recovery program, which is based out of the sanctuary and where second eggs are wild, harvested in the wild. They then brought up, they incubated, they hatched, they brought up so that they're not, they know that they vultures. It's a very complicated, very technical aspect. Those birds will then be used as parent birds, and when they start laying eggs, those juveniles will be um, released back into the wild. Bearded vultures are one of the few vultures that sometimes lay two eggs. And that but they only raise one chick. So by removing the other egg, you're basically saving it. It it was lost to the wild anyway. So we, we're not catching wild birds and we're harvesting these these eggs and creating a genetically a biobank and a genetic bank and use those juveniles when we breed them in six or seven years to release back into the wild.
0: So what are some practical things that listeners to the show can do to help conserve vultures?
1: You know, there's a number of things. So, so farmers, a lot of farmers can can assist with putting out safe food to create what, what we call vulture restaurants. So, um, And there's a series of guidelines, Endangered Wildlife Trust. I have a bird of prey working group. Who, who actually publish a little booklet, and it's free of charge. You go into their, their website. They can welcome to contact uh, myself or anybody at EWT or their local conservation authorities, and and find out how they can get involved um, if they want to do do um, put out carcasses. The other thing is is just being aware and monitoring vultures. Um, if you see any vultures in your area, there are websites. Project Vulture is, is www.projectvulture is a website that covers a lot of the stuff we're doing here in KwaZulu Natal and all the various projects. There's there's some interpretive stuff like at Orbe Gorge. Um, they've got the most stunning vulture experience. Um, where they, they educate lots and lots of people on on vultures. You can get involved with any of the breeding programs. You know, just you just need to contact us. So there is lots of stuff. People can do round vultures and trying to, you know, sponsoring tracking devices, um, which are shocking expensive, um, but they are, are vital to our understanding of these birds' movements.
0: How much is it to sponsor one of those tracking devices?
1: It depends which device we're using. You, If, we, if we're if we using a GSM device, they're, they're about 9,000 rand each. Um, if they satellite devices, they're upwards of 10,000, 15,000 rand. So yeah, and, and it depends what the, what the question we're looking at. So we're looking at basic movement. We can use GSM, but very often if the birds go into Mozambique, which we know is, is a hole, you know, is a, is a sinkhole, GSM doesn't work there. So we, we have to start looking at satellite devices, but we're, we're working on some really nice, um, tech. I'm, I'm quite involved with the, 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 in the design of tracking devices for wildlife. So one of the things we're starting to use is some of this new stuff called Internet of Things, where it's much lower costs. So we we we're knocking on the door. We've got we've got the devices down to to a fairly small, fairly low cost, eight or nine thousand rand satellite device, but it's not giving us some of the the, the really hardcore data, baromic pressures, and stuff like that that the the top of the range two way communication devices give us. So it's yeah, but you're looking between eight and 10,000 rand to tag a world show.
0: So, Ben, it's been awesome to chat to you, but I want to I wanna ask an all-important question to finish off with. If anyone's listening to the show and they want to either sponsor a, a tracking unit or contribute to tracking units or contribute to the program in any, way, in any way, how can they get hold of you? What I'll do is I will pop these links into the comments section, but in case someone's just listening, how can they get hold of you?
1: Yeah, they can get hold. If they just Google Raptor Rescue, um, Kuzula Natal, they'll come up with my number. And they're welcome to contact me. Drop me a email on rescue at africanraptor.co.za, um, or find me, WhatsApp me, anything. And, and we'd be delighted if they, even if it's just sightings, we, we always stoked to get people interested because in, these, this species is absolutely fascinating. Once you get involved, it's actually, it's a, it's a bit of a drug. You, you, you just get involved. It is the most exciting. Project and it's the most valuable project right now. You know, these birds are so threatened and so endangered that it's it's up to us. Without us getting involved, we're just going to sit back and watch these birds decline into non existence and just the world will be a sadder place without vultures.
0: We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Bird Enough project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders and exciting birds out there. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out BirdLasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.